Hello from Haifa, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I am Rabi Ikhbari, a human rights attorney, a doctoral candidate at Harvard Law School, and a non-resident fellow with FMEP. I'm delighted to be here for my opening, opening episode on Occupied Thoughts with Muhammad Al-Kurd. Muhammad is an internationally touring and award-winning poet, writer, journalist, an organizer from Jerusalem, occupied Palestine. He's also the Palestine correspondent for the nation and the author of Rifqa. This is the opening episode of a series on this podcast where I will be highlighting the voices and experiences of Palestinian initiatives, organizers, lawyers, and more working on the ground. I'm taking this conversation today as an opportunity to frame this series and talk about the importance of narrating and developing an understanding of Palestine rooted in the realities and experiences of the Palestinians living under the Israeli regime. Hamad, first, let me ask you, how would you describe this Israeli regime that controls Palestinian lives today? Hello, Rabia. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Um, you know, the Israeli regime manifests itself um, as a settler and colonial regime. It, it, its, its laws and its policies, the things uh, articulated by its lawmakers, the things uh, spoken by the Zionist pioneers, all tell us that this regime is an expansionist and colonial and racist regime. And this is attested to by the rubble of our destroyed villages. This is attested to by um, the corpses that are withheld um, in the Israeli system of slain Palestinians. And this is attested to by the acres and acres of lands that are swallowed every single day by the Israeli regime. Um, and it's a, it's a regime that affects the lives of millions of millions of people whose, life have, whose lives have become extremely fragmented um, ever since the 19, and even before the 1948 Nakba and continue to be fragmented to this day. It's not, uh, it's not necessarily uh, this, it's not necessarily today's regime that is extremist or right-wing as is popular to say in news media, especially in the United States, but historically the Israeli regime has been um, right-wing and extremist and conservative um, always when it came to the Palestinian question, always when it came to the Palestinian people and even the bodies uh, that liberal Israelis and the liberal world at large is trying to protect within the Israeli regime, such as the Israeli judiciary has had its fingerprints all over Palestinian oppression since its inception. It's not a, a beacon of uh, progress as it's advertised to be, and it's certainly not um, very different from the right-wing, quote-unquote right-wing extremists that are leading the Israeli government today. Thank you, Mohammed. Uh, you've mentioned, you know, this idea that um, it's an ongoing regime that has always been built on uh, the suffering of Palestinians. While in fact, many in the US in particular see Israel or separate Israel from the question of Palestinians, right? Uh, they talk about this liberal talk about, you know, Jewish and democratic state or about the idea that um, there, there is, you know, as if, the so-called occupation is separate from 
so-called Israel proper. Now, why is it important, do you think, to always understand Palestine or, or let me rephrase, do you think this separation is even viable? Um, or how do we assess the situation from which perspective, from the beneficiaries or the victims? I mean, this, the separation is only valuable if you're okay with glossing over the lives of millions and millions of people, which is like a profoundly and powerfully racist position to have. It's a dehumanizing position to have, but no, there is no separation between the Israeli regime that governs the lives of Israelis and the Israeli regime that occupies and subjugates Palestinians. Um, even Palestinians with Israeli citizenship have to deal with um, this kind of uh, sub subjugation on the day-to-day -day basis. Um, so no, there is there there is absolutely no separation. I think that's and even the idea that the Israeli regime can be both Jewish and democratic is such an oxymoron. It's laughable. Thank you. Um, well, having that in mind, we still witnessed in the past couple of years a turn to describe Israel as an apartheid state, or more accurately to say perhaps that Israel is committing the crime of apartheid under international law. This has become a consensus in the human rights community actually, and leading human rights organizations like uh, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, uh, Amnesty International issued detailed reports about Israeli apartheid. But these findings have been largely dismissed by Western governments, including the Biden administration, who otherwise considers these organizations as reliable source of information and analysis. Now, perhaps it's a two-fold question, but what do you have to say about these reports? Do you think they describe the Palestinian experience accurately? And second, why do you think the US government and other countries are rejecting them? Well, first of all, the US government and all these other countries are on the playground together and they're they have strategic interests they're they're allies they are working together they have been partners in 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 the occupation they're not merely diplomatically supporting the occupation but have historically funded the occupation and it is in their best interest to keep the israeli regime alive and well in the region um this is you know been said when joe biden has repeatedly said the quiet part out loud in various APAC uh, conferences where he said if there had not been an Israel, we would have to go out and invent one. And he said so repeatedly. So it's, it's very obvious that the rejection um, of the apartheid report or the various apartheid reports is not based on merit of any kind. It's not rooted in any science, but rather it's rooted in strategic and shared mutual strategic interests. And also, I mean, this is this is kind of just saying the obvious, but neither the United Kingdom nor the United States nor Germany have particularly the historical standing to be viewed as a moral compass. Not for me, not for, for anybody with common sense, because apart from the historical atrocities that they have waged against people, be it slavery, the Holocaust, and decades and decades and decades and decades of colonialism, they are still subjugating and oppressing um, people and minorities and people of color in their countries today. Now, mm. in terms of the 
the reports themselves. You know, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I think my the the sentiment, my largest sentiment around the reports is one, they are excellent. It's a step in the right direction. It's a good historical correction. But the other part of my sentiment is and has always been resentment because Palestinians, Palestinian scholars and academics, Palestinian lawyers um, have for decades and decades and decades made this conclusion that um, the Israeli regime is guilty of the crime of apartheid, among other things. We have said this, we have had field workers from Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International come to our houses, sit on our couches, talk to us, um, eat at our dinner table, um, take pictures of the, our pain and suffering, and then just shy away from taking our analysis, censor our analysis and framing. And here they are decades and decades later, um, you know, coming to this, I like to joke, I like to say it's this epiphany, coming to this epiphany that uh, this is apartheid. Well, good morning to them. Um, and I think it's a, it's a step in the right direction, but you know, what I'm, what I'm worried about um, is I wonder how much, and we, you and I have talked about this before, and there's a growing sentiment around this, how, how helpful is it to adopt another framework when we have our own mm. unique framework, which is the Nakbe, right? Mm. Which encompasses um, settler colonialism, colonialism, it encompasses ethnic cleansing, it encompasses uh, you know, apartheid, military occupation, so on and so forth. It's a, it's a unique framework and it's been ongoing for over 75 years. And there is much scholarship, there is much uh, resources that have been built around it. And I wonder if it's been ignored by the international community simply because it's the product of Palestinians. Hmm. Well, that's, that's very interesting. And it takes me right into my next question, which is about the ongoing Nakba, the, Nakba, the idea that Israeli dispossession and erasure of Palestinians is a structure and an ongoing process rather than an event that just happened in the past. I mean, 75 years after 1948, the year marking the great chattering of Palestinians to make room for a Jewish state, Palestinians today are fragmented and hold various identity cards. Some are citizens of Israel, like myself. Some are only considered residents of Jerusalem, like you. And others are designated as West Bank ID holders, Gaza ID holders, or refugees. You know, I wonder to what extent do you think the Palestinian experience is the same? And to what extent do you think it is different across this legal and territorial stratification? Yani, I'm, I'm in Jerusalem right now, which is about two hours from where you are in Haifa. And I, I would argue that we are in completely different planets. Um, and such is the case for Palestinians in the West Bank. And, you know, to say nothing of Palestinians living besieged in the Gaza Strip. Uh, we live under completely different circumstances. And even our cultural byproducts. Uh, are different. There are many unique iterations of our day to day, um, but all but this fragmentation and the aftermath of this fragmentation is by design, right? It's a divide and conquer strategy uh, of the Israeli regime that makes it incredibly and increasingly difficult for Palestinians to relate to one another. Um, 
يعني you, you see this in in the legal status you see this in the, in the right to movement you see this in 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 so many different ways and i must admit يعني uh, an active element of this divide and conquer strategy has been uh, building resentment between palestinians thinking that there is some kind of hierarchy in this oppression mm. thinking that some people have it, have it easier than one another but i want to argue though um and this might sound a little bit romantic but i want to argue that in 2021 during the unity uprising the so called unity uprising we saw something that was quite amazing we saw palestinians no matter the the geography no matter the legal status uh come together and unite um and these colonial barriers that the israeli state has built over the past 75 years be it like real cement barriers that divide our villages and encircle our towns or the barriers in the mind have evaporated even if for a very brief moment and and we see this anytime there is some kind of crisis palestinians be it in a refugee camp in lebanon be it in the in beit lahem be it in ramallah be it in jerusalem we feel each other's pain and we rise up for one another and it it is it is a rare occurrence but it does occur whatsoever and i think this is the ultimate failure of the israeli um system or the ambitions of the israeli system hmm that's very insightful thank you mohammed i mean this fragmentation is indeed you know our existence as palestinians is always in between this unity and fragmentation i want to jump now to to ask you a bit you've mentioned a bit before about you know using us palestinians or the palestinian experience as a raw material for analysis while denying us um the right or permission to narrate uh, and analyze our own experiences uh and palestine especially in the us is a topic that is often discussed by pundits and opinionators who are very far removed from the situation on the ground we've seen you going on interviews in mainstream us media outlets and calling out these people who claim to be experts on the situation why do you think it is actually important to always localize our interventions and what do you think these people are actually missing when they talk about palestine um that's very interesting yani i i hesitate to use the you know there is there is an urge to say like oh we should center palestinian voices or we should localize and so on and so forth um and i hesitate to say this because not not all palestinians have uh, political education not all palestinians come from the same uh you know class not all palestinians are you know committed to the palestinian cause right this is this has been the case across history in colonized uh subjects where you have people who are collaborators where you have people who are a bit absent minded and you have people who are revolutionaries and you have the intellectuals and you have the people who deeply care and then you have i think most importantly the people on the front lines and i think this is who we need to prioritize people who have skin in the game people who have lots to lose people who are feeling the batons on their skins people who have the bruises uh to prove that such batons exist this is i think what matters the most and mm. i really want to stay away from identity politics when i when i argue about this when i argue for this because it's not 
you know, this is, uh, you don't need to be Palestinian to understand that colonialism, oppression, subjugation, ethnic cleansing, military occupation, apartheid, et cetera, et cetera, is wrong and should be uh, morally objectionable and should be, uh, you know, condemned and persecuted and so on and so forth. You don't need to be Palestinian uh, to do this. And I, I don't want to turn this into an identitarian, an identitarian issue, but I think those who have the proof, those who have, you know, the insight and the analysis, those who, uh, know what needs to be done are those who are on the front lines and these people, their voices need to be centered um, because otherwise the Palestine, especially in progressive uh, spaces, the Palestinian question, the Palestinian question has become an industrial complex and people mm. turn it into a career path. People turn it into this, you know, mental mental exercise where they go and they flex their muscles and analysis and it's we we oftentimes forget that there are there are real real consequences i mean over the past uh, 72 hours um we had over 10 palestinians killed and i'm ashamed to say over 10 not knowing the exact number but having uh, a pogrom in turmas aya having uh, uh syrians who are under israeli occupation in the golan heights uh, berated and beaten and uh, arrested uh, for protesting colonial expansion on their land, um, having uh, confrontations with the Israeli army and Ramallah, all of this. It's, this is the situation that we need to be paying attention to, not the hypothetical um, and distracting really ideas that have for decades been coming out of DC, that have been coming out of the Western world. Um, where we oftentimes forget and neglect that there are people paying real hefty prices um, for living under occupation. Now, all of that said, I also want to kind of shed light about the fact that not everybody has the luxury to be or play the role of the advocate. You know, if you have a boot on your neck, um, if there are settlers harassing you and your family, if there is, you know, a crisis in your front yard, it is not often that you have the five minutes uh, to talk to a journalist or to, or the 30 minutes to write a press release and so on and so forth. And this is why we need to invest in our communities. We need to um, do lots of media trainings, not to get very technical, to do, to do lots of media trainings and to be, uh, to be mindful of how much people are juggling. I mean, most people in Palestine are out here winning bread, are out here working nine to five. They, are, they cannot afford to deal with, you know, mm. uh, struggling to make ends meet, the occupation, and also being a civic media journalist in their living room. Uh, so, you know, people like me who are able to speak, uh, despite despite all of this, it's it's quite a luxury. And we must be aware, I mean, we must be mindful of it also. Hmm. You know, you've mentioned this is very, very, um helpful and I appreciate your um, um, take on this because you know you've mentioned the question of moral clarity which reminded me of what you said before also about this that in real time all atrocities were once complicated or were once um, the world did not take a very clear moral stand on this can you take talk more about this idea um, that yes. you know we see things differently in perspective or in historical perspective and how it applies to Palestine as well. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I think this also ties very nicely about uh, about your very first or second question about why these Western governments have rejected so powerfully the apartheid report. And it doesn't need, you know, it doesn't it doesn't take much research to look at the stance of, you know, like how late was the UK to the party when it came to rejecting apartheid to South Africa. That mm. tells you everything you need to know that historically, um, people who have opposed injustices have not been met with applause, have not been met with awards or like roaring mm. agreement. That's not been the case. Usually if you're on the right side of history, you're um, persecuted, you're silenced, you're censored. And you know it doesn't take much moral clarity, it doesn't take much courage to uh, to oppose the Holocaust today, to oppose slavery today. Um, but it yeah. does take that kind of bravery to oppose occupation in Palestine today, especially with anti-Zionist views and anti-occupation views and anti-Israel views being, um, you know, there's being there there being a push to criminalize these views. There's people are losing their jobs, people are losing their academic prospects when they have anti-Zionist views, when they stand up for what is morally right in Palestine, that is when bravery comes into play. But I must I must argue, and I say this all the time, I think this is like, for those who have heard me speak before, this is kind of like a broken record. You know, no matter the consequences of your advocacy uh, on Palestine, they will never be as dire as the consequences and the circumstances of living under military occupation every single day, of living under um, Israeli and Zionist rule every single day. And so people, especially those in the United States, those in the Western world, those who have the luxury to speak out need to be braver. Um, this has been 75 years of ongoing bloodshed, of ongoing injustice. Even if there was no bloodshed, yani, to be honest, even if there was no bl bloodshed, the mere fact that there are people in the West Bank in Ramallah. Um, you know, the other day I was in, I was in a taxi and the driver told me that he wishes, this is a very young driver, maybe like 30, 35 years old. And he, he, he told me that it's his dream to go to the ocean. You know, that within itself is incredibly violent and it cannot go on for any longer. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this takes me to, I wish this conversation can go on and on because there's so much to ask you about. Uh, I just wanna, you know, highlight some thoughts maybe that I still wanna linger with about you know who has the privilege to speak and how this conversation even being held in english you know between me and you for example shapes even the content of this conversation or shapes our um ideas our articulations and it reminds me of whether these you know um whether victims in general you know have accessibility to narrate their experiences um I want to close our episode today by asking you about your writing and how it relates to narrating the Palestinian experience. Um, you've said in the past that unlike writing in Arabic, in Arabic, there is a dearth of writing in English that honestly reflects the Palestinian experience. What do you mean by that? And how are you trying to change it? Yeah, I mean, trying to change it is like a massive, uh, very massive claim. But I'll say that, you know, growing up, there is this chasm. Uh, between Arabic and English, through which you know, in in Arabic you're steadfast, you're standing tall, and you're 
you're legitimizing the resistance, you're legitimizing uh, your views, you are unafraid of your natural human reaction to subjugation. Whereas in English, your anti-Zionist sentiment or your anti-racist sentiment or your anti-colonial sentiment has to be prefaced by minutes and minutes and paragraphs and paragraphs of disclaimers and justifications and so on and so forth. We're almost dancing in front of our audience, waiting mm. um, for, for them to, uh, to approve our sentiment. So I try to just, you know, peel away at all of this and say, you know, call things by their names and call it spade a spade. I mean, I'm not saying in any way, shape or form, I'm not saying there are not people doing this in English. There are, but the people who get the mic, as you said earlier, the people who have the right to speak, who are offered the platforms, oftentimes water, water down their language, oftentimes feel the need to perform, feel the need to adhere to this um, ethnocentric standard. And this has been, you know, this is not out of the blue. I mean, we don't have the whole day to speak about this. And I obviously understand this is not out of the blue. The Palestinian people are some of the most demonized people in Western society. Um, the way we have been represented in the media following the first and second and the follow up following 9-11 and so on and so forth forced us in a way to adopt this strategy of humanization so that we, we don't send you know, our lawyers to speak on the Hill in Congress. We send our like 12-year-old children. I mean, I was one of those kids who carried their PowerPoint and went to Washington, D.C. to to you know, convince politicians that I'm human and I deserve to live in dignity and blah, blah, blah. But I think this strategy is a failed strategy and it's time uh, for us to start calling a spade a spade and it's time for us to be unabashed and just say what we say in Arabic, say it in English. Um, because people, as the Russian invasion of Ukraine has shown us uh, in recent months or years, I don't know how long it's been going on for, but people can understand resistance. People legitimize resistance. I mean, you walk, you know, people commemorate, people understand violence, but it's not right that only when it comes to Palestinians and Palestine that we need to, mu to muzzle ourselves, that we need to censor ourselves. Um, so this is, I, I think, my, my very, very humble and little contribution to the, to the, you know, literary tradition about Palestine. And it's certainly not, you know, groundbreaking anyway. It, 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 it merely just translates Arabic into English. Mm. Thank you so, so, so much, Muhammad, for sharing your time and analysis today. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMEP website, www.fmep.org, for more resources related to our conversation today. And please make sure you are subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. And with that, I'm Rabi'i Ghbari, signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Mm -hmm.